and reading, at their very best, are a social experience. Whether it be a book club, a poetry slam, or the production of a play, words are meant to be shared. I'm your host, Amy. And I'm your host, Carrie. We've been in a book club together for over a decade and enjoy talking about what we're reading, but in so many ways, we are opposites. Carrie is a cat lover, but I'm a dog nut. Amy loves a good party, while I prefer to wear my fuzzy socks while introverting on the couch. But books are the tie that binds. Each week, we have fun conversations with interesting people about how books and reading influence their lives. We will find out what books are on their nightstands and ask them about five things that make them who they are. We invite you to learn more about the many perks of being a book lover. February is Black History Month, and while we believe Black authors should be read any and all times of the year, this month can sometimes be the impetus readers need to help them discover new-to-them Black writers. Not only can you experience Black art through literature, you can see it in the theater where a play is brought to life and someone else's reality is laid bare before the audience. Our guest this week is Sydney Edwards, the new, young, vibrant director of the African American Theater Studies Program at the University of Louisville, which includes both a minor and a graduate certificate. The university's graduate certificate program is the only accredited program in the country for African American theater. The unique thing about this program is its flexibility. It can be part of a graduate degree in theater, or their certificate can be done separately and online, perfect for professionals like teachers or community leaders who want to become more familiar with black culture and art as a whole. Sydney talks about her journey to becoming a performer, a professor, and the head of the program. She tells us how the Battle of the Books program for school students in North Carolina sparked her competitiveness and love of reading as a child, how the subject matter for many plays written by black playwrights hasn't changed that much in the last century even though the format has evolved, why theater jobs behind the curtain are a relatively untapped job area for African Americans, and why elementary and middle school students are some of the toughest audiences out there. All right, on this very cold, snowy February day, our guest is Sydney Edwards, who is the director of the African American Theater Program at the University of Louisville. And she's going to talk to us all about the program and plays and drama. So, Sydney, thanks so much for joining us. Glad to be here. Thanks for the invite. So, tell us a little bit about you. Are you originally from Louisville or did you grow up elsewhere? I'm a very proud North Carolina girl. And um, I'm from North Carolina. I came to Louisville in 2015 to go to grad school at UofL. And I got my uh, my master's in the theater program. And then I left and wound up coming back to do this position. So I really loved Louisville. So I, I was excited to be able to come back. So sometimes I, I think that people forget that plays, they can be in book form. I know I forget that. And as a theatrical performer, you've read a lot of plays. So can you tell us a little bit about your reading life as a drama student and a performer? Sure. Ironically, I feel like as a student, I didn't get to read as much as I wanted to, like outside of class, right? So you got to read all the stuff that's required. And then life is so crazy, you don't get to read a lot on your own. But what's great is, you know, when you're a student, the professors cover all the the cool stuff. I'm actually feel like I'm reading more now as a professor because I'm getting to go back and add all the plays that I never got to read that I want to read and like making my students read them. 
So there's that. And I think a lot of it just comes from like friends passing plays along to and like, you need to read this or, you know, somebody's working on something. So I'll go check it out because it can be really expensive to buy plays just one at a time. Mm-hmm. But you got to buy them like through the publisher. It can be expensive when you do that. There's a whole like, you know, people sharing stuff. When you were in school, going through drama school, were there certain plays that everybody was sort of expected to read? Oh, yeah. Like we went in and there was a whole reading list of suggested reading that some of it you get to, some of you don't. Especially with our program, because we we have the African-American theater program. We read a lot of August Wilson, (laughs) a whole lot of August Wilson, and then more contemporary stuff, too. We read some like Susan Laurie Parks and, and Lynn Nottage when I was coming through school, that kind of thing. But yeah, the staples is still, uh, still August. So, you know, when you were a kid, like even before you got into the, the program, were you a big reader before that? And so was that anything that sort of drew you to drama or you were drawn to drama for other reasons? Right. No, they, they weren't connected. I wouldn't say the two were connected. I was a big reader uh, in school. In North Carolina, okay. I don't I've never heard about it here in Kentucky, but there's this whole thing, this whole competition called the Battle of the Books. I have heard and of that. Yeah. We did the Battle of the Books. So there's like a whole list of books you read in middle school and you're on a team and you go to, you know, the nearest big town and you have to like answer trivia questions about all the books. And it was a ton of fun. So I loved reading <laughs> for that reason. And like book fairs and stuff. And I've always loved reading. I don't always have the the time to do it like I like to. But yeah, I had a love for it as a kid. And wound up getting into to theater. Mostly because I was a band kid. I was a music reader. <laughs> and uh, there weren't really any avenues for music past band for me like out of high school. And that's when I found theater. So tell us a little bit about your own personal journey to the theater. Like were you in school plays? Things like that? No, it's super weird. So... My like earliest memory, I was actually like in a, a production of Annie when I was five. I was one of the little orphans, but I barely remember that. And then from there, like, you know, your, your third grade teacher makes you perform at the PTAs and then you have to perform at the Christmas pageants. But like theater wasn't even on my radar. I didn't live in an area where that wasn't a thing. It wasn't even something that people were thinking about as a viable career. Like I went to school when I went to college, I thought I was going to be a journalist until I realized I really hate writing. So, um, yeah, I wound up going to a small liberal arts college called Peace College in Raleigh, North Carolina. And the theater department was so tiny, they would pay us to come do plays. We'd get scholarship money to come do plays because they didn't have anybody. There was like three or four of us. And then by the time I graduated, it became a whole major. So it was a musical theater major. And I became the very first person to graduate with the BFA from the university. Oh, wow. Um, But yeah, I wound up into theater because I realized that performing was a passion, even though I had been doing it in other ways before I found a way to keep doing it. So what, what instrument did you play in band? Oh, I was a saxophone player. Oh, cool. And I was a drum major. So I kind of went back and forth, but yeah, saxophone and concert band and marching band. Well, tell our listeners a little bit about the University of Louisville's African-American theater program and its history. When did it get started? How long has it been there? Yeah, sure. So the African-American theater program is part of the university's theater department. So the theater department has been a whole thing since like 1970, right? And African-American theater program came along about 1993. Oh, okay. 
which is like two years after I was born. So, you know, <laughs> you're making um, me feel old. <laughs> but so what we do is we're dedicated basically to teaching and producing black art, black theater. So the department is committed to doing two works by African-Americans or African diasporic playwrights, playwrights and, and, and plays um, that necessarily have to be African-American because, you know, there are African writers, too. Every year, when a lot of major theaters, if you pay attention to the trends, they kind of only do one a year, if that. So we're dedicated to doing two. And then we have an entire course load, as it were, because around 2002, 2003, Nefertiti Burton, who's the current chair of the department, developed the graduate certificate for African-American theater. So there are several classes you can take. It's about 15 credit hours, it stands now, that of courses in Black theater. So Black Dramatic Literature, uh, hip-hop theater, African-American women in theater, all these classes you can take and get a certificate in African-American theater, which is really great. So our program does that. And then we're also working on, it's kind of hard in the time of COVID, but our uh, community engagement. So we work closely with the Kentucky Center for African-American Heritage. Just recently, we did a volunteer program with Gilda's Club in town, do some Black History Month programs for the kids and for the women there. So that was a lot of fun finding other ways to get involved too. But that's what the program does. We're just committed to black art. So how common is this type of program across the country? Are there very many programs like this one? No, I'm so glad you asked. We're actually the only accredited program in the nation. So we're, we're kind of it. What's very interesting about that right now, we're actually in process to make that completely online. So that for the first time ever, people outside the, of the Louisville area can get this certificate, especially for the only one in the country. It's kind of important that we make hmm. that accessible. So you mentioned that there's these two components. So there's the minor and there's also the, the graduate certificate. And I was looking through the, the coursework for both of them and the per, Black Performance Studies minor, it's got, as you mentioned, like Black history classes, Pan-African literature, and a ton of like really super interesting sounding electives. So why are these courses that deal with African-American art and music, you know, you, I know one of them was like a jazz studies class. So why are those important for a student that's in the program? Well, I think one of the things that makes our program really unique at UofL, obviously, is that we have this component. And what I think it does that a lot of other more Eurocentric programs don't have is it incorporates that diversity systemically. Like it's mm -hmm. not an extra thing. It's not something that's on the side. It's something that you're going to run into if you're in this theater department. You're going to be exposed to this kind of art and this kind of cultural diversity that you're not going to be introduced to anywhere else. I definitely wasn't introduced to it as an undergrad uh, where I was. And what I think makes that so important is it opens up students' perspectives to see outside of their own experiences. Mm. And like all great theater does, it allows us to empathize with one another, see that our ways are not the only ways, right? And if we're able to empathize with each other and see outside of our own experiences, we can then compromise better. We can communicate better. We can come to understandings and we can create better places. So at the bottom of the website where it talks about the graduate certificate, like I was thinking it would only be performers. 
Right. Okay. So no, it's not just performers. Because of all the different electives that you can take and the independent studies that you can take with various faculty members, you can really get this certificate concentrated in multiple different things. If you're interested in designing the Black aesthetic, then those would be the courses that you would take in addition to the the required courses. You can do it in playwriting or in community engagement or in dramaturgy, which is really, really, really exciting. It's one of my favorite things. But yeah, you can get it in, in several different concentrations, not just performance. And I feel like people that are getting this online and in various communities will be getting it in these various concentrations. Mm-hmm. One thing I've thought about this, you know, like if this is not the thinking at all, then steer me correctly. But one of the things that was like, for teachers, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the teachers would benefit from this. And I thought, you know, this is probably a great way because every individual sees through their lens of experience, right? So like for me, why my experience is, is as a white woman, but if I'm teaching students who are black or brown, I need to be immersed in understanding. And so it occurred to me, you know, when I saw that, I was like, this would be a great way for teachers who know, like, okay, I need to read more, be more aware. I've got this work to do. Your all's program of studies would be an excellent way to do that. Is that, is that some of what you all are thinking? Yes, Carrie, you're spot on. That's exactly what we were thinking with that because teachers are, and educators have been a, just a, a huge part of our target audience as well. It's about that cultural competency, mm-hmm. really. We need to know about, if you have black and brown children in your room, you need to know their history. You need to be able to, to guide them towards their history if you're responsible for their education. So as the director of this program, what is your role? What does a typical day look like for you? Oh, well, it's so interesting because I moved back in the time of COVID, right? <laughs> so like my living room is my office, even though I don't have an office office. I answer so many emails. <laughs> but my typical day, I'm teaching right now. I'm teaching one class online and I'm teaching one class hybrid. So I mean, partially in person and partially online. Uh, via Zoom. And then my all online class, that's just all writing, all Blackboard. So like I do a lot of grading. I do a lot of class prep. And I have been working on a lot of just specific programming for us. Like this past weekend, we did a Valentine's Day themed open mic where I invited students to come and we recorded like their poems and songs and stuff. I sang on it. It was super fun. We did, a, we did an open mic last semester as well. Last semester, we took some students down to the Breonna Taylor Memorial Park, Jefferson Park, and we did some poetry there. Just at finding ways we can get, you know, engaged, like I was saying. But my typical day is a lot of email. It's a lot of reading. It's a lot of meetings. But it's a nice change of pace from the hustle of my performance life. So <laughs> I'll take this, this COVID break. <laughs> so what classes are you teaching right now? So I'm teaching Black Dramatic Literature right now, which is like a play script interpretation class, but all Black plays. So I started with Rachel, which was written in like 1916, and we're going all the way to like Sweat by Lynn Nottage and Skeleton Crew by Dominique Morisot. You know, they all just came out in the last few years. So kind of spanning the time there. And that's all online. And I'm also teaching one of my favorite classes, which is Acting the Black Experience which is a look at performance through the diaspora, through the Black aesthetic. And so I explore African storytelling. All the students 
We tell folk tales and we talk about the skills and the techniques behind that. We perform Harlem Renaissance poetry and talk about the time and what that they came out of. And this semester, we're going to try uh, hip hop monologues. So taking our favorite hip hop songs and finding the stories in them and telling them and performing them as monologues. It's going to be a lot of fun. I do want to ask, because you had mentioned August Wilson, that you studied like August Wilson's plays. And I know, you know, people think about Lorraine Hansberry, mm-hmm. uh, Raisin in the Sun. So tell me some of that. You mentioned Skeleton. Yeah, Skeleton Crew by Dominique Morisot. She got that MacArthur Genius Grant a couple of years ago. She is fire and I love her. Lynn Nottage, who's a, a huge award winner as well. Uh, other contemporary playwrights. Terrell Alvin McCraney. Is a great playwright. He also wrote Moonlight, which was you know, won the Academy Award. He's a playwright. I saw one of his plays. Pandora Productions did one last, about a year ago, Choir Boys. I went and saw that one. It was good. They had some amazing performers and singers in that one. Other contemporaries, Brandon Jacob Jenkins is a contemporary. Nicole Salter. So, so these people that you're mentioning, you know, are in theater now. These names are going to be like, rolling off their tongues like these are well-known okay was it jeremy o'harris i think just did slave play that had a lot of attention up in broadway before everything shut down so when you're teaching these classes do you have a lot of freedom to pick what you want to do or is some of it like prescribed where you have like curriculum people going you need to make sure you teach this that or the other no, that's a really good question. I have surprisingly way more freedom than I thought that I would, right? And so I had the freedom to really create my own syllabi for these courses, which was great. Everything gets seen by our chair. She approves everything, but mostly we get to, you know, teach what we think is relevant and important to the class, which is cool. It's great in that, you know, you had the freedom to do your own thing, but then you got to like sit down at the beginning and like really make that syllabus. And oh Lord, that could be so daunting and hard. I mean, like, I don't know what to do. I'm- I feel like, you know, after you teach things a couple of times, it's sinking. I'm enjoying it. But yeah, lots of freedom, more freedom than I thought I'd have. So do the students get an opportunity to also write plays? Is playwriting part of this program as well? I'll be honest, right now, it's not as big a part of the program as I would like it to be. And I don't know if that's because we haven't had students that have expressed interest in it, or if it's because we just haven't like straight up offered it. And I don't think as far as faculty members for the AATP that teach for the classes for this specific program, I don't think there's anybody right now who has in their realm of things to teach. But, you know, so we get new people and we get bringing guest artists, that kind of thing. We have, however, been a big producer of new works. So while we haven't had students write things, we've had community members bring things in that we put on stage. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was in a production called Bloodline Rumba, which was written by a uh, local playwright, John Chenault. And he teaches, I think he teaches in the Pan-African Studies Department too. He's really great. But yeah, we, we do newer works. Speaking of playwriting though, actually something that's happening this year kind of forced our hand because of COVID. So I'm producing this AATP show called hashtag when social justice and social media collide and we're in this interesting predicament because of COVID where we aren't really buying the rights to shows right now because buying rights to put something on stage is different from buying rights to like film it and 
and then put it up, right? So mm-hmm. anything that we had prior, the season we had prior planned, kind of got kicked out the window because we can't publicly show any of that work. So we're doing what you call a devised piece for this AATP show. And my students are actually the playwrights or my co-devisers. And we started this week. They've got some fantastic ideas. They're actually going to be writing the sketches and the pieces that are going into this work. So it turns out they are going to get to try their hand at playwriting, as it were. You know, you talked about kind of that flexibility. It sounds like this program, I mean, like like you said, even if you don't have somebody who's specifically teaching a class in playwriting, it sounds like you've got enough flexibility that you could bring in people that it's not necessarily, you know, one teacher teaching day one, here's playwriting, but it, it, it almost sounds like it could be more collaborative with lots of different people. It is. And the thing is, if there's a student that's very, very adamant about their desire to write plays, basically anybody can take an independent study course, which means basically you're delving into something that you're very interested in that there might not be a course for it right now, but you're like, I'm going to pick a faculty member basically to sponsor my research in this area. And so that happens a lot. You've talked about it, but I'm thinking of how does the African-American theater program differ from a general theater program? And how does it prepare students differently? So I think the important thing to really keep in mind is the African-American theater program isn't the entire theater department. We're part of the theater department and the theater department prepares students in the general ways that any theater department would. There's gonna be voice classes and movement classes and acting classes. And of course, you know, theory classes as well. What our niche in the theater department does is just add that cultural component where we focus on the diasporic arts, which you don't get in a lot of other programs. So it's a really great additional component to what we already have going on. And the beautiful thing is it's so prevalent and it's such a big presence in the department that you're not going to go through that department no matter who you are without having run into this diasporic art in some way or, or another. You're going to work on an African-American theater piece. You're going to read a play. You're going to run into it. So I guess I was envisioning in my head, I was thinking it's like a separate thing, but it's with that program, you're getting everything you would normally get plus more for a fuller education. Yeah, it's a fuller education. That's the way to think of it. We are housed within the larger theater department as like basically supplemental to everything that's going on. Okay. Okay, so then a teacher who might be interested in this, they could just do the certificate. That's the beauty of it. You can just do the certificate. No, that's the beauty of it. Like I said, most people get it while they're getting a graduate degree, but the certificate is obtainable all by itself. And it's only 15 credit hours, which if you pick, you know, the right classes, you could really knock it out in a year if you wanted to. What we're leaning towards now, which is super exciting, like I said, we're going online and we're trying to make all of our required classes, those eight week courses. So you would take one back to back to back. You'd wind up with a big project uh, in the summer to complete. And then you would have your your GCAT. Well, I'm thinking of it's total self-interest here, but so I have a teaching certificate, but I don't teach full time. So every five years, I have to take a certain number of graduate level classes to renew my certificate. And I'm like, these would be such great classes 
to take, this would be perfect for those people who are maybe slowly kind of adding to their credentials and don't necessarily want to take some class on pedagogy or whatever that's like snooze fest. Carrie, don't take my class. <laughs> don't take my class, Carrie. <laughs> I, I have the GCAT myself and I think it looks fantastic on a resume, to be honest, because it shows that you've put that work in to diversify your education and your experience. We work towards creating a more inclusive, anti-racist future. That's what our focus is. And that's the only way we can do that is if people know what's going on, people have that knowledge and that education. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm wondering, in your view... If you think that African-American theater has changed over the years, and especially like with the Black Lives Matter movement and last summer with the the civil unrest. I mean, I guess everything changes over time, right? And the funny thing is, when you think about Black theater and the history of Black theater. So I was telling you about the play that we're reading in my, my Black Dramatic Studies class, Black Dramatic Literature class, excuse me. This play called Rachel was written by Angelina Weldon-Bremke. And in 1916, she was considered like the first black woman playwright in 1916. The history is not that long. <laughs> and yeah. what's sad is it really started with like the, the movement for anti-lynching plays. There's a whole series of plays that women wrote in that era about the lynching epidemic, what was happening and how it was affecting the communities and the families that that was happening to. Fast forward a hundred years later, we're still making plays about how black people are being killed and how it's affecting our communities and our families. So no, it hasn't changed that much in terms of content. If you think about it, structure wise, yeah, it's moved on with the times, but the struggle persists. Mm -hmm. Amy and I, I guess it was last week, a University of Louisville professor, Dr. David Anderson, mm -hmm. uh, he gave a talk, it was through the library, and it was on the Harlem Renaissance. And I know I didn't realize that prior to the early 1900s, most African American literature was nonfiction. And it wasn't until the teens and the 20s that more fiction, poetry, started to become produced, you know, related to the Harlem Renaissance. I mean, it totally makes sense, but I didn't learn that in school, you know. Because, you know, what it, what it was happening back then is there was, especially right around the Harlem Renaissance time, there was this huge uh, debate within that artistic community of like, we need to make art for change versus no, we want to make art for art's sake, right? W.E.B. Du Bois was like the huge perpetrator of, no, all art needs to be things that move the culture forward. And then Zora Neale Hurston was like, but I just want to write about <laughs> everything else I want to write about. And in those other things, they're still poignant and, and, and moving the race forward, just not in as explicitly a way as some people would have wanted. But yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. You mentioned the African-American theater program being part. So students who don't necessarily want to be in front of the camera, they can learn a lot of the behind the scenes 
work, lighting, and costume, are, are those part of the program as well, or, or no? Yeah, I wouldn't say they're technically part of the African American Theater Program. Okay. They're, they're part of the larger theater program, the theater department, where students are learning those costumes, or learning about sets and lights and okay. design, and through that, they're getting to work on Black plays, so they're learning it in that way, and they're students, so they're probably also taking some of the classes here and there as well. Okay. Now, one of the things that our chair is working towards, and and I'm in total agreement with her, is we'd really like to see a push for African-Americans in these tech fields and design fields. Because I feel like as African-Americans, the only thing that we really see that we can do is being on the stage, being in front. When there are so many other things that happen, you know, behind the set, behind the stage, Mm -hmm. that are often way more viable career options than being on the stage. Let's be honest. They're getting paid a lot more than I do on the stage. <laughs> but you know, you're, you're not going to think about that if you've never heard of it. Right. So trying to recruit, we're actually in process of really trying to recruit minority people for these technical positions and to learn more about technical theater so that we can have really a whole picture when you think about it, the whole production. I used to work at this place in Cleveland called Caribou House Theater. Caribou House is the oldest black theater in the country. And what tripped me out is, you know, most of the productions I worked on, a lot of the people that were backstage were not African-American. You know, we had other people designing and lighting the show. So I just think it's a, it's a career option that a lot of black people don't know about. Yeah, I love theater, but... Like, even though the lights and the costume, like, they all add to the performance. At least for me, if a show is well done, I sort of forget all that stuff. And I'm so carried away by the story and, and it all flows together. To, you know, I have to really sit there and think like, oh, yeah, there were people doing the lights and the music and the, the screens that came down. Yeah. It's mind boggling. You know, when you really think about all the different components that have to be, you know, working together to make a performance happen. Mm-hmm. So you touched on this a little bit about COVID and how you weren't able to to do some of the plays that y'all had planned, but what else has COVID meant for the students in your program? Do you know when actual performances will be able to, to begin? No, that's probably an unanswerable question. We are very, very hopeful for next year. <laughs> <laughs> we knew going into this year that we would not have any audiences, but we're so hopeful for next year, especially with the vaccine rolling out. And like even the productions that have happened this year so far have been virtual programs. So the first one that they did, they filmed in person and they went fine. You know, they were like scares here and there, but you know, they happened. And again, it was like those materials that we can't show public because, you know, the rights belong to other people. I did not know that there was a difference between rights to do it on the stage versus rights to have it filmed. That that's interesting to me. I didn't I didn't realize that. It's different. As a matter of fact, there was this whole dispute between like the stage union for actors and the film union for actors about like who was gonna get to take over stuff during COVID. It was crazy. Because they were like, we're on stage, but we're filming. And the film family was like, well, then we're taking over. And we're like, no, but it's the state. Like, it was a whole thing, okay? It was a whole thing. So we're in this predicament where we're having to Hamilton this thing out. (laughs) Try to be really uh, crafty with uh, filming our stage production. So, yeah, the one that I'm doing this spring 
We're going to write it in person. We're working on our playwriting where the whole first process is us writing it. And then we're going to be in person for maybe two to three weeks with all of the precautions place. I did a show with stage one here in Louisville, stage one family theater in the fall. They had theater for everywhere. It's their children's series. And we put on plays in three weeks and then we filmed it. And it was actually a really cool process. So I'm confident that we can do the same thing. You mentioned hashtag. Is that the one that you're talking about? Yes. Okay. So tell me with the hashtag, explain that, you know, cause I am almost 50. So explain a little bit more about what that, with the hashtags or is everything that they're doing related to hashtags? So it's really an exploration of how we see, talk about experience, social justice or social injustice as it were through social media, Uh, all forms of social media. So hashtag is just kind of like our little catch all title. And it's going to be a one act that's a a mix of sketch pieces and performance art pieces that address social justice and how we talk about race. And so you all have the website from UofL, but do you all also have like a Facebook page that people can follow? Oh, we have it all. I had to create all of that when I came this year. It's my first year. I hit the ground running. So uh, we are on Facebook and Instagram, searchable by at official U of L A A T P. You can find us with that same thing on YouTube and Flickr. We got a Flickr with all of the production pictures. Will some of the performances be on YouTube? Yes. So that is actually our primary way of getting things out right now is they're pre-recorded or at least mine is pre-recorded. And then we premiere them on our Facebook page and our YouTube page. This one's coming out April 15th. Okay. Well, we are going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what we're reading. We are back and we're going to talk a little bit about what we're reading. And so, Carrie, what's on your nightstand? What's going on? So I just finished an audiobook. It's The Round House by Louise Erdrich. And it was narrated by Gary Farmer. And I really enjoyed this audiobook. It won the National Book Award several years ago. And it's the story of a Native American teenager named Joe. And at the beginning of the story, his mother is raped. And it's about how that damages her and how it damages their family. But then you come to find out who did it, who raped her. And for a long time, the mother didn't want to talk about this. You know, finally she gets to the point where she says who it is, but there's kind of, I I don't want to say a mystery, but there's a story related to this man who raped her. And so this story, I love the narration it's told from Joe's perspective. So it's the young boy's perspective. And there's just a lot of different things going on. You've got the relationship between him and his parents. He talks about how he visits his uncle and then visits his aunt. And he has a a grandfather, Musham. And, And I looked it up and that's a Native American word for grandfather. 
it's a book that's focused on his journey and his experiences kind of coming to terms with what happened to his mother. Ultimately, at the end of the story, he makes a decision that changes the trajectory of his life. And he makes a decision at the end of the story, and then something happens with him and his friends. And it's one of those stories where it's both things happen, you know, so it it moves plot wise, but it's also very much an internal story. So I thought it was wonderfully done. I also finished reading in book form, They Are There by Tommy Orange, and he's a Native American writer. And the two books are totally different. They're there. Each chapter is about a different person in the Native American community. And at the end of the book, they sort of all come together, this powwow. And so they were very different books, but there were a lot of commonalities between them. And so equally good, but they just give you a lot to think about in terms of what Native Americans' history has been in relation to American history from the viewpoint of, I guess, the the white man's perspective. So just a lot of a lot of meat there to chew on. So I've read there there. I've not read anything by Louise Erdrich. The Roundhouse, was it focused on a Native American viewpoint? I mean, I know she's a Native American author, but that doesn't necessarily mean that her books all have to be focused on that. Oh, yeah, definitely. Okay. So, you know, because it takes place on the reservation. I have read another of her books called Love Medicine. One of the families mentioned in that book was the Nanapush family. And that family is mentioned in The Roundhouse. So I almost get the sense, I don't know if this is the case, but you know how some writers have almost, they write about a community, like Jesmyn Ward does this in her book. They're like loosely connected. And so I suspect that that's the case here, but I don't know with certainty that that's the case. Sydney, what have you been reading? Tell us about a fascinating play or whatever. (laughs) You know, listen, (laughs) all I do is read plays these days. I read so many plays. The most favorite one that I've read recently It's called Home by Sam Art Williams, and I'm actually slated to direct that one uh, next year if everything (laughs) clears up. It's set in North Carolina, like in the 1950s. It's a three-person show with one man and two women, and it's the story of this man who, you know, he farms and he has this life in the country that he loves. He has a girl that he loves. And she goes and she leaves him because he's too country for her, basically. And she's like going on to do better things and get her education. And then he winds up losing his farm when he gets arrested for not fighting in Vietnam. So they they, they take the farm away from him because he can't pay the taxes. He winds up moving north and experiencing basically what northern racism is like and what the struggle is for just the struggle in the city in general like things are great they're bad they're great and then eventually he winds up coming back home and it's just twists and turns the two women in the show play multiple characters through his life so it spans time and place it's a tricky one to read but it's a beautiful one to see hmm. and book wise i hmm. the last one i finished was an audio book about whitney houston by Robin Crawford, because I just love biographies and autobiographies. I love people's stories. Um, so it was like, you know, Whitney's life through the perspective of, you know, her lesbian lover or whatever. <laughs> and 
I was like, this is really interesting. <laughs> I dug it. <laughs> <laughs> so back to the play for a minute. You said it was a difficult one to read, but a beautiful one to see performed. So what made it a difficult one to read. I don't read very many plays. Well, I did in school when I took some drama classes and things, but I mean, I don't read them for fun. Although I know some people do. So I'm just wondering like about that particular one, what made it difficult, but in general, like what tips do you have for somebody who would want to read a play just for fun? Yeah. Okay. So I'll start at the beginning. So one of the things that makes this one difficult is there aren't a ton of stage directions. It's really like up to the interpretation of the director and the actors, which I love as a performer. I think that's really beautiful. And so times and like places kind of shift through the dialogue and you have to keep up with it and think about how you're going to represent that physically. But if you're reading it, you might get lost a little bit and have to double back and, and figure out, you know, where we took a left. Which is one of the things that I think is so beautiful about Black work and diasporic art is that it doesn't typically follow the structure of what we, in the Western frame of thought, think of as a well-made play. Like there's an act one and an act two and this scene and that scene and there's stage directions that tell you exactly where the tables and chairs set. Which is not always the case in these Black plays. They often have various structures which make them really beautiful to read. I think one of the first people to do that was Intazaki Shange with uh, For Color Girls Who Considered Suicide After the Rainbow Was Enough. It's a choreo poem, so it's not your typical structure at all. I think if somebody wants to start reading plays and just wants to read it for fun, I think it's always good to read a play slowly. And I do this when I read regular books too, but I I imagine that the characters are, are people I know, like I put a face on them and I just really try to picture in my mind what's happening as I read it. You really have to take your time with plays because it's mostly dialogue. Can be dense, but can be a lot of fun. I was thinking when you were talking about drama and not necessarily following that structure, it made me think of like, you know, if you read a novel, everything is given to you right? In a lot of cases, it's all given to you. And with plays and poetry, there's a lot of, I don't want to say empty spaces because they're not empty, but there's a lot of spaces where the intent is for the person reading or the person viewing or the person acting to kind of fill those in. Yeah. It's interpretation. Yeah. yeah, Which is why you can have so many various different productions of one play. (laughs) Because everybody's going to see it and interpret it different. Well, Amy, what have you been reading? So I'm going to talk about two books today. The first one I'm going to talk about is a mystery. And I don't read very many mysteries, but I really, really enjoyed this one. It's called The Lost Man by Jane Harper. And it was published in 2019. And Jane Harper received a lot of attention for her debut novel called The Dry. And I think I even mentioned it on the show. But Harper writes mysteries that are set in Australia. And more specifically, the outback of Australia. And The Dry was the first in a series about a police detective. And I enjoyed that one quite a bit when I read it several years ago. This particular one, The Lost Man, it's a standalone mystery. And it's also set in the outback. And it features the Bright family who live out on the outback. And they own a huge tract of land. And they're ranchers. They raise cattle. And the family includes three adult brothers, their mother, the middle brother's wife, and two little girls, 
a ranch manager who's been with them for decades, and two backpackers from England who are working as extra help for the season. One of the brothers is found out on the land, and he's died of dehydration. His car is found within walking distance away, and it seems to work perfectly. It's not like it broke down or anything like that. And there are water jugs in the trunk. So you have to wonder, why did he die? Or how did that happen? So the thing that Harper does so well is describe the atmosphere of the outback. The place is a character in its own way. And she describes the brutality of the landscape so well. The heat and the lack of water make it easy to perish if you happen to get lost or your car breaks down. And this ranch is two hours from a small town and three hours from the the next largest city, which is Brisbane. So they are completely isolated. And the other thing that Harper does so well is set up expectations for the reader. And then little by little, she strips them away, which is great for a mystery. And just as you think you know what a character is going to do, things change. So it reminded me a little bit of the pandemic and that the family lives so far from civilization that they spend so much time with just each other. Like right now, I love my family, but I have to spend a lot of time with them a lot. And things that maybe wouldn't normally irritate me are driving me bonkers because I see them all the time. I need to see and talk to other people, other adults besides my children. And so, I mean, I'm lucky I get to go to the grocery. Like, so at least I do see other people, but the Bright family, they only see each other except for when they go into town, which is mainly only monthly. And that's to go to the post office or something. And the children do something called school from the sky. And it's like virtual school that we do. But prior to the internet, the school children living in rural Australia did this school by radio. So they would tune in and the teacher would do instructions over a radio station, which I thought was kind of kind of interesting. I would compare these to like a Tana French mystery. She's an Irish writer. But if you like Tana French mysteries, I would definitely give this Jane Harper one a try. Now, the second book I'm going to talk about is actually Zora Neale Hurston. And, you know, we were talking about how Carrie and I did this program through the library. It was sort of a Harlem Renaissance for dummies or a speed course in the Harlem Renaissance by the University of Louisville English professor. And it was a great talk, and it made me want to explore some of the prominent artists from that time a little bit more. And I've always been a huge Zora Neale Hurston fan. And so when I first read Their Eyes Were Watching God in college, it totally blew me away. And it was my favorite book for many years. So I decided that I wanted to read a little bit more about her life. And so I read her memoir, which is called Dust Tracks on the Road. And it was, she wrote it in 1943, and it covers the first half to two thirds of her life. And if you've ever read a Hurston book, you know she writes in really rich language, full of imagery and colorful sayings. And her autobiography is not that much different. I'm not sure that I completely caught all of the references, uh, but it's fun to read. And her childhood was really interesting, and in that she had a dream when she was seven years old where she had. 12 visions of things that would happen to her in her life. As the autobiography goes on, she kind of kind of ticked those off. She actually did eventually experience all these things in her real life. And she had a really colorful, interesting life. She traveled the country with a touring opera company as a lady's maid. 
to one of the performers. She worked for a popular novelist in the 1920s. The funny thing is that novelist I've never heard of, but people still hear about Zora Neale Hurston today. But anyway, she worked for this popular novelist in the 1920s named Fanny Hurst. She worked as an ethnographer and she went to the South and the Caribbean collecting songs and folklore of, of black folks. And she talks about her love affairs and about the man who inspired the character of Tea Cake and their eyes were watching God. She talks about her views of religion and she was awarded two Guggenheim fellowships. But there are sections where I wonder, and actually this kind of harkens back to what you were saying, Sydney, about the difference in the Harlem Renaissance between someone like Zora Neale Hurston, who sort of just wanted to write about what she wanted to write about, and other people who wanted to further the cause. And there are places where I wondered if she was writing this with the white gaze in mind or a white audience in mind. There's one section where she talks about a wealthy white woman who was a patron to many people of the Harlem Renaissance like herself and Langston Hughes. And she's referred to as the godmother. And Hurston only speaks of this woman in glowing terms. And she did bankroll a lot of her trips to the South to collect folklore. But there's a lot of controversy about this woman because she was very controlling and wanted to have a say over, you know, which companies could publish Hurston's work, what things she could publish. So it was very interesting to me that she only says glowing things about her. So you want to go back and read Their Eyes Are Watching God so I can see if I see more of her own life influenced in the work. So yeah, I'd recommend it, especially if you're a Zora Neale Hurston fan. All right. Well, we're going to take another short break. And when we come back, we're going to ask Sydney her top five. We are back with Sydney Edwards. So you've worked with children's theater organizations, including the Missoula Children's Theater in Montana. So how is performing children's theater different from adult theater? And what is the top most fun thing about doing theater for children? Uh, Just getting to be utterly silly. (laughs) That's the best part of it. I think the challenging and the beautiful thing about like children's theater is they hold no punches. Like you're going to know if you're entertaining or not, they're going to tell you, (laughs) they will let you know. (laughs) They're not shy about it. Yeah, no, no. I I, I did Missoula children's theater. I wound up doing a tour with Cleveland playhouse in the Cleveland area with their schools. I was in the Louisville U of L rep company here. So I've been doing a lot of children's theater. And well, I don't enjoy the early mornings, (laughs) I enjoy getting to interact with children in that way, being a part of their growth and their education and just the awe and wonder because you kind of see in their faces sometimes like, oh, something special is happening at school. This is great. You're always the most interesting thing that's happened that day. So (laughs) lots of children's theater. I I love doing that. Can you tell a difference between elementary and middle? Like middle oh, schoolers are like. <laughs> middle schoolers are not having it. They're not having it. But, and you know, every and every crowd is different. You'll get that group of middle schoolers. This is like angels and completely respectful. I think that's maybe happened to me twice. And then the other ones that are like heckling you the whole time. <laughs> and it's like, you could set yourself on fire and you're still not going to impress them. I much, I much prefer elementary school students. I prefer them 
so much because they they want to interact and play with you. Yeah. When I do like workshops and stuff, the biggest problem we have is who's going to stand next to me in a circle or, you know, who's going to come up on stage and help. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. All right. You mentioned that you like audiobooks about comedians. And I recently listened to one by Mike Birbiglia and another one by Steve Martin. So what is the top audiobook by a comedian you have listened to and would recommend to others? Ooh. Oh, there's so many though. Well, okay. name a couple. Okay, wait, wait. We say top, but you know, top okay. is relative, right? The two, the three that comes up. <laughs> <laughs> That, that I've really enjoyed most recently. Kevin Hart's was very funny. He narrated it himself, which means he threw in a bunch of extras that you're not going to get when you read it. And it was really <laughs> cool. Uh, his story is incredible. Bernie Mac actually has a beautiful story of family. And he was a, a comedian that got famous later in life. So he lived a whole life before he became the man that we saw. And he really tells us and digs into his life in Chicago. It was so beautiful and, and heartbreaking. And um, Richard Pryor, actually. The person that narrated Richard Pryor's book sounds like Richard Pryor, which was amazing. But he has an incredible story. He had a really tough beginning. And uh, just a tough life overall, but he was so damn funny. Good ones. So question number three. Your degree was in musical theater and you love to sing. So do you sing in the shower? And if so, what is the top favorite song you belt out? Well, first of all, I will, you know, attest that the shower is the best place to sing. First of all, you got (laughs) that beautiful steam helping out your vocal folds is lovely. And mine's really niche. It's so weird. But one of my favorite songs to sing in the shower is Tina Marie's Out on a Limb or Casanova Brown. They're both really good shower songs. (laughs) Okay. Now, do you do karaoke? And if so, what's the top song you like to perform? Listen, I miss karaoke so much. Oh my God, I miss it, I miss it, I miss it. I can't wait till we get karaoke again. And the song that I always pull out is Proud Mary by Tina Turner. Oh, without, good one. Without fail. Yeah. <laughs> I bet that's spectacular. I know I'm, I'm combining three singing questions in one question, but right. what is your top earliest singing memory? Honestly, it's singing in the choir at church. My grandma drug me to choir rehearsal at like eight years old or whatever. And I remember liking it and I got attention because I was a little thing in the front and my mouth was so big. You could see it at the back of the church. (laughs) (laughs) So I like, I like that. All right. Question number four on your downtime, which admittedly is hard to come by when you are in theater. You like to binge watch trendy Netflix shows to relax. So what is the top favorite show you've watched in the last year? And what is the show you have watched the fastest? Ooh, I think fastest. I just, I finished Bridgerton in like three days. I was, I was like, this is going to be stupid. And then I was just (laughs) (laughs) through it. Got me through, got some Bridgerton in. I watched this show called P Valley on stars, which is actually pinned by Katori Hall, which is a black playwright. She's amazing. And the, the show was, was wonderful uh, about a strip club in Mississippi and like refugee person that's like hiding out in this strip club. It's crazy. What's the name again? P Valley. On it's stars. on stars. Uh-huh. 
I watched Euphoria with Zendaya. She's amazing. Euphoria is on HBO. And I can't binge it anymore. I have to wait for it to come out. But This Is Us is like my favorite show. So I have to like wait uh-huh. every week for that to come out a little bit at a time. So I have a little bit of a crush on David Diggs. I'm in love with David Diggs. I'm with him. <laughs> and so he is in a show called Snowpiercer. He is? I didn't yes. know he knew that. Okay, now I'm going to watch it. Yes. But now I have to say, I mean, the premise is a little weird because it's like climate change has happened. And so the temperature outside is like minus a thousand degrees. But there are these people on this huge train where they basically it's like a civilization on the train right they grow their own food and it's a very strange premise but i'm like what else am i doing i have nothing else to do i have nowhere to go so if you if you love david you have to go watch blind spotting which is a movie that he wrote and and it's fantastic okay i 100 recommend blind spotting okay I have written it down. I you will, will check email it out. Me. You'll email me when you watch it. <laughs> no, you were right. <laughs> okay, last question. So you have been a traveling performer and you've participated in many theater festivals and programs across the country. So I assume when you do those, then you spend several weeks to several months in different towns and cities and you get to live like a local for a set amount of time. So what's been the top favorite city you've had the chance to experience as a thespian that has surprised you? Ooh. You know, I've been I've been a lot of places. <laughs> uh, when I did Missoula, I toured all across the, the Northeast. I went, drove from Montana all the way to Cape Cod. We landed in New York and Portsmouth, Ohio, and Iowa. There's nothing in Iowa. Don't go to Iowa. <laughs> <laughs> But um, we had a day off. We had just finished this residency in lower Illinois somewhere. And we were like right outside of St. Louis. And I had never been to St. Louis. And we did the Ark. And we had St. Louis barbecue. And we went to City Museum, which is like a big old playpen for adults or whatever. (laughs) I don't know. I had a ball. St. Louis surprised the heck out of me. It's one of my favorite trips I've had. That City Museum is pretty cool. Yeah, I totally agree with that. There and Memphis. Memphis was another one because you had the Peabody Hotel. There's Stax Museum. There's the Civil Rights Museum where that the Lorraine Hotel where Martin Luther King was shot, which is amazing. They won awards for that. I didn't get to great do Graceland though, but Memphis was dope too. Well, Sydney Edwards, thank you so much for being a guest on our show and telling us all about the University of Louisville's African American Theater Program. And we will definitely be posting when we see stuff from you all on our Facebook page. So thank you so much. Thank you guys for having me. I had so much fun today. Thanks for joining us today. For show notes for any episode, please go to our blog site at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. Follow us on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover and on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to and when new episodes air. If you enjoy our show, spread the word and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other listeners find us. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots, community-based radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, 
Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.